your people need you this morning. We need you every morning. And Father, we thank you that you have supplied our every need in Jesus Christ. And you have met our greatest need. We who were once sinners facing your wrath, Lord, you you sent your own son, the slain lamb, to bear the punishment that we deserve. Father, grant us a, a fresh appreciation for that this morning. Lord, would you help us to see Christ in all of his glory, both the glory of his love and mercy and grace, and Lord, also in his justice and his holiness. Lord, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would give me your spirit, more of your spirit this morning, that I might speak your words and only your words. And Lord, would you give your people ears to hear, soft hearts, and Lord, those who are here that have not yet trusted in Christ, Lord, today, may the, today be the day of salvation for them. We ask all this in your son's precious name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Where there's a story that's told about six blind men I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Kids, you can go ahead and be dismissed to Hope Kids. Today might not be the day that you want to sit in here. Um, let me try that again. There is a story that's told about six blind men. I think this story originates in India, by the way. But these six blind men visit the palace of the king. And while they're there they have an opportunity to meet an elephant, right? And each of these six blind men find themselves touching different parts of the elephant, right? One touches the, the trunk, one touches the tusk, one touches the ear, one the side of the elephant, one the tail. All of these men are touching different parts of the elephant, and, and so each of them come away with a different impression of what the elephant is like. And then they begin to argue with one another, about what the elephant is like until finally the king, right, who can actually see, right, and who sees the whole elephant, explains that they have to put all of those parts together in order to be able to capture what the creature is truly like. It's not an either-or scenario. It's a both-and. Now, I, I think the original intent of this story is, was much different um, but I do believe that it illustrates something very important for us this morning, and that is this. If we're not careful, there is a possibility that we might hyper-focus on certain aspects of God's character to the neglect of others. 
D.A. Carson actually warns of this danger in his article on distorting the love of God, where he points out how in Western culture, the love of God is often separated from God's sovereignty, holiness, wrath, providence, and the person of God, which redefines love, particularly the love of God, as something other than what Scripture says. We tend toward a sentimentalized doctrine of the love of God, which finds difficulty meshing with the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty and justice. Now, I want to be careful to acknowledge, we just got through singing about God's love. The reality is that we as believers need to know more of the love of God, not less, right? And we have not yet scratched the surface in our understanding of this glorious reality. But as those who are called by God to both believe the gospel and bear witness to the gospel, both ourselves and our hearers are at great risk if we merely stop at asserting God's love and mercy. Because the Bible doesn't stop there. Revelation does not stop in chapter 5. And though we may find those things far more palatable to our culture, the gospel of the glory of God encompasses both His justice and His holiness as well. And it is precisely through our grasp of God's justice and His holiness that we actually grow in our appreciation of all the dimensions of God's great mercy and love for us in Christ. Now, the message of our text this morning is not an easy one. John is not embarrassed to share it. And God knows that His church needs to hear it. So if you have your Bibles, if you could go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 1. There John says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering, and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures, fourth living creatures say, Come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with, by wild beasts of the earth. Now, before we dive into our text this morning, I want to remind us quickly of the three things that are going to best help us to understand the message of Revelation. One, so we've said familiarity with the Old Testament. Two, reading Revelation as apocalyptic literature. And three, 
keeping before us the three glorious visions we see of Christ in chapter 1, chapters 4 and 5, and in chapters t- chapter 19. Because remember, those visions are the hinges on which the book of Revelation turns. Now, we just finished covering the second of those visions last week when we finished up in chapter 5. There, John gave us a small but very significant window into the throne room of heaven. At the heart of his vision in chapters 4 and 5, two things stand out. Chapter 4, the absolute holiness of the one seated on the throne. Though the four living creatures unceasingly announce his holiness, time cannot exhaust it. Words cannot capture the extent of it. The only appropriate response is to fall on our faces in worship. And the second thing we see in chapter 5 is the unique worthiness of the victorious Lamb. It was the slain and risen Lamb who absorbed God's wrath and accomplished redemption. Therefore, only He is worthy and able to open the scrolls. Only He is able to reveal and execute God's eternal plans for judgment and salvation. John wants us to not only see those things, he wants us to feel those things this morning as we come to our text. Because we're going to need, as we read chapter 6, we're going to need a settled conviction about God's holiness and the Lamb's worthiness as we look at what follows. Our first point this morning is a summoning voice. We've already read verses 1 through 8. But there we see John speaking about how the worthy lamb in his vision is beginning to open the seals. And the opening of the first four seals is followed by the same pattern. One of the living creatures from around the throne summons with the authority of God himself a horse and rider who carry out a different aspect of the divine judgment on earth. Now let's look at each of those seals in turn. As the first seal is open, we see a white horse appear. And as John tells us in verse 2, its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now we might be tempted to think that this is the Lord Jesus Christ that he is describing here, particularly when we see Christ um, revealed as a horse, or excuse me, as a, a rider on a white horse in chapter 19. But given the fact that the rider here carries a bow rather than the sword, which is actually given to the second horseman, and because of how closely it parallels the other three seals, it's more likely that the first horse and rider represent some kind of satanic force. But we're told several things about this rider. He has a bow, he's given a crown, and he comes out conquering and to conquer. Now, often in the Old Testament, that the word bow um, is used as a poetic symbol of military power, right? Because even if we look at Jeremiah 49, God says, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. I will terrify them before their enemies. The crown that we see here, verse 2, 
is given to the rider, symbolizing victory and dominion. And what does he come out to do? The text says he comes out to conquer. Right? So this first horse and rider communicate the idea of military and political power and domination, conquest and oppression. When the second seal is opened in verse 4, we see a bright red horse appear with a rider who is given a sword and permission to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. What John is describing here is civil war and unrest. God in His mercy grants peace and restrains human violence on earth. But when in judgment that peace is taken away, humanity turns to bloodshed. And though it may not have been in view for the original audience, I think the contents of this seal could also include acts of terrorism. As the third seal is opened in verse 5, a black horse and rider emerge. This rider has a scale in his hands, and that's presumably for measuring goods. A voice is heard to say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. So in this situation described, a day's wages, right, a denarius, a day's wages are barely enough to feed an individual, much less a whole family. So the basic necessities of human life are scarce, and therefore we see inflation, inflated cost. The best case, you remain hungry. Worst case, you and your family face starvation. The fourth seal is open. In verse 7, a horse, the color of a corpse, emerges. And his rider's name is Death. Hades follows him. And the text says that he has given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Yet, as is true of the other horsemen, the text says that the one who holds the keys to death in Hades has granted him this authority. Now, it might seem like John is just kind of throwing four random things together here, but he's actually quoting from Ezekiel 14, verse 21. There the Lord talks about four, quote, four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, which he will send upon idolatrous, unfaithful Israel. So these four judgments of the fourth seal summarize the previous three, but then they also add to it the fact that wild beasts and pestilence are going to be sent. Now, every year, hundreds of people are killed by wild animals, right? Whether lions or elephants or, or alligators or what, what have you, every year, hundreds of people are killed by wild animals. And if we want to look at things on a larger scale, millions upon millions of people tragically lost their lives in the Antonine Plague of the 100s A.D., the bubonic plague of the 1300s, the AIDS virus of the 1900s, and most recently the COVID virus. Yet, as we see in our text, these judgments are limited by God's restraining mercy. That is the point of the writer only having authority over a quarter 
of the earth. They are painful, right? Even devastating. But they are only partial judgments. And each time we experience them, it's just another contraction. They are merely the birth pangs. And the fact that all of these judgments, all the judgments of the first three seals are shown together in the last seal gives us reason to believe that these things will actually overlap in time, occurring throughout the church age rather than one after the other. So they don't signify the end. They are, in fact, the normal experience of humanity as we await Christ's return. But I think we might all ask ourselves, what purpose do these really serve within God's plan? Well, G.K. Beale offers us this explanation. He says, the purpose of the trials in Ezekiel 14 is to punish the unbelieving majority while purifying the righteous remnant. Therefore, he concludes, the same dual purpose of the trials is likely mined here in Revelation 6, except that now the church community is the focus rather than Israel. The faithful will be purified, but those who compromise through idolatry and become disloyal to Christ will be judged by the same tribulations. He also points out that in Zechariah 6, four groups of horses of almost identical colors to the ones in Revelation are commissioned by God to patrol the earth, whom they find have oppressed his people, right? They, they are commissioned to punish the nation, nations who have oppressed God's people. These nations were raised up by God to be a rod of punishment, but what ends up happening is they inflict more retribution on God's people than they should have. And as a consequence, God intended to punish the pagan nations for their transgression as a vindication of his jealous love for Israel. Therefore, Beale concludes, the horses in Revelation 6, 1 through 8 also signify that natural and political disasters throughout the world are caused by Christ in order to judge unbelievers who persecute Christians and in order to vindicate His people. All right, so now, that's a lot. Let me summarize all that for us. If Beale is correct, and I believe he is, here's how we can summarize that. The contents of the first four seals are designed, one, to humble and judge God's enemies, and two, to purify and vindicate God's people. That sounds really neat and tidy for us, doesn't it? But that's often not how we experience it. It doesn't seem to fit with what we see in daily life. Why does it so often appear delayed and disproportional? Why does it so often feel like good things happen to seemingly bad people and bad things happen to seemingly good people? D.A. Carson helps us here. He says, Wars, plagues, congenital birth defects, and many other afflictions are not very discriminating. Therefore, if we see them only as retaliation or retribution for specific sins, we shall be terribly confused when people who have not indulged in such sins suffer along with those who have. But if instead, Carson says, if we see that such suffering in the first place is the result of a fallen world, the consequence of evil that is really evil, 
and in which we ourselves all too frequently indulge, then however we may grieve when we suffer, we will not be taken by surprise. That is why most biblical writers are surprised neither by the prevalence of wickedness nor by the suffering it occasions. In individual cases, of course, there's painful questioning as to why this person or people should suffer when others who are far more wicked are exempt from such affliction. But on the whole, the biblical writers are surprised not by punishment, but by the Lord's forbearance, patience. Friend, if you are here this morning and you have not yet placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know that God is mercifully calling you to Himself through partial judgments. So when you hear in the news about Hurricane Katrina destroying New Orleans, or when you hear about suicide bombers in Somalia killing hundreds of people, when you listen to the reports about earthquakes rocking Turkey. You are to see in that, among other things, God's patience and forbearance with you. He is giving you time to repent. Don't delay in turning to Him this morning. Don't presume upon His kindness Come to Christ and find forgiveness and salvation because there is coming a great and final day of judgment as we shall see in just a few moments. And believers, when suffering hits close to home, we would do well to remind ourselves of the vision of Jesus Christ that we saw in chapters 4 and 5. God is utterly holy. Every single one of us has sinned egregiously against Him. And the costly price of our redemption was the death of His own Son, the slain Lamb. If we truly want life to be fair, not only would none of us escape suffering, but we would all suffer eternally. But beyond that, our Father, a loving Father, means good for His children in every affliction we experience along the path of obedience. He who holds the keys to death and Hades and all things in His hand is purifying our faith and drawing us into deeper fellowship with Him through suffering. He is drawing us closer to Himself. But how easy a thing to say, right? How easy it is to say that, how hard it is at times to believe that. But as we come to the fifth seal, John's vision shifts to a heavenly scene. Second point this morning is a suspended vindication. Let's look at verse 9. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer till the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete were to be killed as they themselves had been. So as the fifth seal is opened, John sees under the altar the souls of all those whom, as Revelation 12 describes, had loved not their lives even unto death. Now many people are killed in the judgments of the first four seals, but these are the ones who are killed because of their faith in and loyalty to God. They have chosen to identify with the suffering slain lamb, both in life and in death. Now, in our American Christianity, the idea of someone dying for their testimony of faith in Christ and commitment to God's Word, it seems kind of foreign to us, doesn't it? Most of us feel almost totally disconnected from that in our daily lives. But that is not so for many brothers and sisters around the globe. And it's not been true, it's not been the case for many Christians throughout church history. And to our great shame, we who live with the the greatest abundance of religious freedom and resources, we are often the least willing and the least prepared for suffering and death. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world and throughout history are known to have embraced suffering. They have not only embraced it, but they rejoiced at it. Their prayer is that the Lord would strengthen them to be faithful even unto death. And so often, our prayers are merely that we might escape suffering and death. Friends, we need, I need to be reminded of what Jesus says to his followers in Mark 8, 34-35. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So while we might not all be called to give our lives as a dying sacrifice, we are all called as Christians to take up our cross and to give our lives to the Lord Jesus as a living sacrifice, as we're told in Romans 12. Now, these souls, John tells us, are situated under the altar. And the image of the altar here is communicating both the presence of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. In the presence of a holy God, these precious souls who have given their lives as a sacrifice to God are ultimately covered by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So from underneath the altar, these martyrs pray to the one on the throne and This is what John hears them asking. 
O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Having themselves experienced violence and oppression at the hands of the wicked against the people of God, they cry out, Sovereign Lord, you who rule over and control all things, you who are a holy, 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 and whose character requires that wickedness be punished. You who cannot lie and have promised to vindicate your people, how long before you will execute your righteous judgments on the earth? When will you show us your justice? We considered this in our psalm series when we looked at imprecatory prayers but I would remind us that these are glorified saints praying this. These are men and women free from sin, calling for God to judge the wicked for the sake of His name. They are calling for God to bring His just wrath to bear. Now listen to God's response to their prayers in verse 11. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer to the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So these believers, martyred for their faith, clothed by the Lord in white, representing the righteousness of Christ, and encouraged, the end is in sight. Just a little longer. Rest. Now, we all know that for a God who operates outside of time, what, cons- what He considers a very small amount of time can feel like, for us, an exceedingly long period of time. And, and we, even more than they, particularly us who are so accustomed to immediate gratification, we can struggle to wait with patience for God to put an end to suffering and bring about His justice, can't we? But it's really the second part of God's answer that kind of catches us by surprise, especially when we consider that this vision is recorded by John in order to strengthen and comfort His church in the midst of great trials and tribulations. Look again at verse 11. They were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So just as God graciously elects men and women, children to be saved, so He also elects men and women and even children to suffer martyrdom for His name. His good and wise providence, He does this. He knows their day and their hour, and therefore only He knows when He will return. As Pastor Jenis Johnson says, Here is a clear answer to our when question. 
right? You want to know when Jesus is going to come back? Here's a clear answer. But it will only frustrate date setters. The lamb will return to avenge his witness's blood just as soon as the very last martyr lays down his or her life. Listen to this. The days on God's calendar are marked off one by one in the blood of the martyrs. So when we read about the persecuted church, when we hear about the horrific slaying brothers and sisters around the world, we can rest assured that God has not abandoned His justice. He has not forgotten His people. He knows each of them by name. And as we read in Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. As if in answer to their cries, the sixth seal is opened. And the camera pans back to earth. Third point this morning is a sobering vengeance. Look at verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The opening of the sixth seal, the old heavens and earth began to come apart. The language used, taken directly from Joel 2 and Isaiah 34, signifies somewhat of a cosmic unraveling. Things are just coming apart, right? At this great and final day of the Lord, things are happening in the earth and in the heavens. The earthquake here is reminiscent of Exodus 19, where the earth trembles the presence of God in His holiness descending upon the mountain in the presence of His people. With that in mind, the author of Hebrews says in verses 26 through 29 of chapter 12, at that time, speaking of Mount Sinai, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, if, if the inanimate objects of creation tremble at the presence 
But God, who is a consuming fire, what shall sinners do? Those who have spurned His holiness and rejected the Lamb, what shall they do? Well, verse, verses 15 through 17 tell us. Whether political leaders or military leaders or crime bosses or tech billionaires or celebrities or everyday citizens or slaves, and in case some category was left out, everyone, he says, will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And just about everyone can tell you where they were on 9-11, right? I was in my high school math class, and I remember my teacher pulling a TV into the room so that we could watch the events unfold on live television. I can remember, as I'm sure we all can, the heartbreaking footage of men and women running as fast as they could in absolute terror from the trade towers. Remember that? With those images in mind, I want you to imagine those people, those same people, encountering something so terrifying that the burning towers they had just fled from in fear, they now ran back to for refuge, hoping and praying that the buildings would fall on them. Friends, that is exactly what is described here in verses 15 through 18. On the great and final day of His judgment, being crushed by the mountains will be preferable to facing the awful and awesome wrath of the Lamb. Chapter 5, we saw the Lamb praised for His bearing the wrath of God. In chapter 6, we see the Lamb feared for His revealing the wrath of God. If you are here without Christ today, you have only two options. You can trust the Lamb who has borne God's wrath for you, or you can face the Lamb who reveals God's wrath. I would plead with you, that's you this morning, I would plead you even now, repent of your sins. Repent of your sins against God and trust in Christ as your Savior. Just listen to the question that every unbelieving sinner will ask on that day. Every unbelieving sinner will ask this question. Let this ring in your ears and in your heart. The great day of their wrath has come, and who? And stand. Next week, as we look at Revelation 7, John is going to tell us exactly who it is that can stand before.
the Lamb and before the one seated on the throne. It's those who have had their garments washed in the blood of the Lamb. Christopher, if you could go ahead and come on up. Church family, as those who have been washed by the blood of Christ, what comfort can we take from this passage? Right? What does this difficult text do to serve and encourage our hearts? Again, Greg Beale helps us. He says, Christ rules over such an apparently chaotic world, and that suffering does not occur indiscriminately or by chance. We ourselves wonder whether or not God is in control. This section of Revelation reveals, in fact, that destructive events are brought about by Christ for both redemptive and judicial purposes. It is Christ sitting on his throne who controls all the trials and persecutions of the church from the time of his first coming until his return on the last day. Church, our wise and loving king rules over all things for his glory and our good, whether civil unrest or international wars, political oppression or terrorist activity, natural disasters or personal tragedies, even death. No amount of suffering, no category of suffering is excluded from his good providence. And I would remind us that the slain and risen lamb is worthy of our suffering. He is worthy of our obedience and our worship. And while for the present time he continues to humble his enemies through these partial judgments, even leading some to repentance, he is also purifying his people through the same suffering. So we need not fear it. We may, in fact, embrace suffering in that it affords us an opportunity to grow in our likeness and conformity to Christ. It gives us another opportunity to fellowship with him in a deeper way. And one day, right, in that great and final day, we can rest assured that he will fully execute his just judgments and vindicate the faith of his people. Would you stand and we're going to sing together.